And so this morning we're going to start a four-week series uh, looking at the life of Daniel and talking about what it means to stand firm and love well in a compromising culture. Um, it's an exciting series that I, I believe we're going to learn a lot from and be challenged by the Word of God. So, turn, like I said, turn over to Daniel chapter 1. And we need to acknowledge a couple of things. I'm going to be using the word culture, and so I need to define that word culture as it pertains to the message. Our mission, one of the points of our mission is bridging cultural gaps. I believe the Lord gave us that part of our mission because specifically we live in a county where there is such cultural diversity. We have people from various cultures and part of our mission is to bridge that gap with the kingdom culture. Now, different cultures uh, influence, the cultures influence people based on uh, a, a few things, a few things. Let me just read the, the definition of a culture here and I'll, I'll show you. Cult, the defini de definition of culture is the behavior and beliefs characteristic of a particular social, ethnic or age group. So social or ethnic or age group. You could say that we have a culture in America. You could also say that the youth have a culture. You could say that, you know, people from different nations live in a different culture than you live in, right? And so there's diversity of culture and we, we, need to, we need to look at the culture that we live in as it pertains to the world. There is a world culture. And we're going to identify in the next four weeks that world culture. More so next week than this week. But the world culture is called Babylon. Babylon. In, in, in Daniel's day it was Babylon. But we can see the spirit of Babylon operating in the earth today. And there's a spirit of this age. And there's a culture of this world that we need to be aware of and, and um, so that we can stand firm. We need to be aware of it so that we can stand firm and also love well in this culture. And today, as the church, we're facing this dilemma and the same type of dilemma that Daniel faced way back in his day. We're facing this uh, culture that's increasingly going away from God. And, and we've got to figure out how we're going to navigate through that. You know, it's important to remember that Jesus prayed to the Father before he left. And he said, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil of the world. And so God doesn't just want a people to endure the negative culture or the negative influence of the day. But he wants, he wants us as his people to influence and impact the culture for good. Can you say amen? amen? He wants us to be influencers in our culture. And so we're taking a look at Daniel. Let me tell you some interesting facts about Daniel, or the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has 12 chapters, and the first six chapters of the book of Daniel talk about the history. The, the last six chapters talk about the prophecy that Daniel had because he was a prophet. But uh, let's kind of back up before we dive into the first chapter of Daniel 
and realize something about the Bible. And I think this will help us too. From time to time, we need to back up and kind of get an overall uh, or a, a, a 30,000 feet view of the Bible. We think in our logical, natural mind that the Bible is a book of history. And it is. But it is not organized in a chronological manner. It starts in Genesis where God created the heavens and the earth. But, and, and then in Revelation we see God is doing things and saying things that, that is yet to come. So in our mind we think that Genesis is the beginning and Revelation is the end. But the Bible is not organized like that. It is not organized in a chronological fashion. You have the first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch, which is called the Law. And Moses wrote those books. Then you have the history books leading up to the, uh, the poet, poetical or poetry books. You've got um, Esther and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you go into the, uh, the, the, the prophets, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. So the prophetical books are in there, and we find Daniel in the major prophets. And uh, by the way, major and minor prophets doesn't mean that they're, they're taller or shorter than each other. But the books are bigger or smaller, right? The minor prophets, the books, the minor prophet books uh, are smaller. Nahum, you know, those Ezra. Uh, but the major prophet books, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, are bigger books. Daniel has 12 chapters. So we're going to look at the book of Daniel and how Daniel, thinking about uh, the historical aspect of the book of Daniel and the prophetical aspect of that book and how the Holy Spirit dropped it in right at the right place in the prophetic books for us today as a guidebook to point back to and say, okay, this was good for Daniel, but it's also good in 2018. You know, the things that God speaks prophetically to us is for our admonition, our warning to be aware of something in the future, right? What Daniel dealt with, we're dealing with. And so we can see some of the correlation between the points that God was making to Daniel and how we can benefit from, from gleaning from those points. So, we, we see in, in Daniel where Israel went into captivity. And it wasn't the first time that they went into captivity. And here, here's a tip here. In any time that we reject God as our king, we pay the consequences for it. And I really think that America is standing at that threshold of making that decision. We've been at that threshold, and it's, it's a pretty wide threshold which shows the significance of God's grace. But we're still there as a nation, and, and we can impact and influence our nation for good if we'll stand firm and love well. But as a nation, the United States was, was founded as one nation under God. And the enemy, it's interesting to look at the history of the United States and to recognize that the enemy has tried to, to divide the people in America, in every generation for the past 242 years. Actually, longer than that, but, you know, 1776 to 2018 is 242. I know that because I did on the calculator. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> Some of y'all think faster than the speed of light, but I don't. But, 
You know, every since there was this core group of people that wanted to worship God and establish this nation, the devil has been fighting every chance that he gets. And the culture in our country, we, we need to open our eyes and see this, but the culture in our country has become increasingly anti-Christ or anti-Christian. And we have to keep our hearts and our face toward God in the middle of this. We've got to realize that where, where we are as a, as a United States culture and as the culture in the world is, is against Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we stand up against the shift in our culture without becoming judgmental or offensive? Because that's, that's very important. So the first blanks there you have on your notes. The dilemma of our day is how do we stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise? How do we do that? How do we stand firm in our faith while living in an ungodly culture? Is it, is it even possible? Well, we see that Daniel did. He not only stood firm, but he influenced and had a great impact on the culture of his day, and we need to do the same. So I'm going to be, begin reading in Daniel 1. I'm going to read through verse 6, and this is in the New International Version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jeru Jerusalem and besieged it. In other words, captured it and took the Jewish people captive. They became slaves again. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These, carry, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon, Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So we see from these verses, one of the first things that... Babylon tries to do is to rename us. Culture will try to rename me. Babylon, the world, says we need to give you a new name. Names are a sign of ownership. Names are a sign of ownership. You know, there's... Uh, there, there has been gang activity in our country for a long time. There's times where it's really high and times where it goes down. But 
part of that initiation of becoming a part of that gang culture is they give you a new name. In this instance, the Babylonians wanted these young Jewish, and they were about 14 years old around that age, but they were, they were very outstanding. No physical defect, very handsome, very strong, and, and on their way to becoming leaders. And the Babylonians said, we need to cut them off from their heritage. The Jewish folks named their children a significant name as it related to God. And so there was much... Uh, much intent and thought given to the naming of every child. The Babylonians, when they renamed these four boys, they gave them names that pertain to the Babylonian gods. So this was significant, that they were forcing them into assimilation, into their culture, because they were cutting them off from their namesake, which was God, and introducing them to the Babylonian gods. And this, was, this is what will happen to us if we're not careful. We need to realize that the world tries to give us a name. And that name doesn't fit us as Christians. If you have been born again, the Bible says that you are in Christ and you are found in Him. You are seated in Him. You have a place in Christ. And so the name that we carry is our name in Christ. Now, you may have been named uh, by your parents or by your grandparents. Some people have been named by their grandparents. Some people have been named after their grandparents. You may have a natural name and you may not even know what that name means. But if you have given your heart to Jesus and you are following after him, he has a name for you that's greater than any name that the world would try to give you. We can see that identity is so important in these days that we're living in. Culture's first agenda, put this down in your notes, is to change our identities. To make you believe something about yourself that's absolutely not true. That's the first agenda of the Babylonian culture and the culture of the world is to change your identity and to know who you are in Christ is a major step in becoming a solid disciple. That's one of our four points of our mission, that we are, we are a church that builds solid disciples. That's one of the first steps in becoming a solid disciple is finding out who you are in Christ, establishing your identity in Him. So that the world doesn't confuse you about who you are. It's so vital today that we know who we are in Christ. Because we see the results of people that don't know who they are. And they believe that, that they are someone that they're not. The enemy wants to confuse us to the point that we would agree with him to take our, even to the point that we would take our own life. And I'm talking specifically about the suicide epidemic today because the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, came out with the statistics on the rise of suicide in the past 15 years. It's risen 30 percent, guys, 30 percent. 
I think in 1996, it, there was 45,000 in one year. That, uh, currently, there's an average of 132 people committing suicide every day in America. And where, where, uh, where doctors study disease and the progression of a disease, it would, it would be considered an epidemic. And I'm asking myself as a spiritual doctor, why is this so prevalent today in, in this Babylonian culture that we live in? Because the devil is convincing people that they're not who God made them to be. They don't know who they are. The, 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 gender, the gender identity confusion is part of this. If the enemy can, can keep people from finding out who they are in Christ, he can get them to a place of confusion in their mind to where it seems good to take their own life. Right? And so this is what we're dealing with. The, the, two, the two recent ones in the past week, this Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. It's an epidemic, guys, and it's not going away. So you're going to hear me talk more and more about it. I believe isolation is part of it. But I believe that, that a large part of this is wrapped up in, do you know who you are? Who, what name do you answer to? Do you know that your Father God gave you a name that's important? Don't lose sight of what God calls you. Do you believe what, what the world says about you or do you believe what God says about you? What name are you taking? Who owns you? Who owns you? Point number two here. Culture will try to change my standards. Culture tries to change our standards. Verse 8 of Daniel 1 says, But Daniel resolved... He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. You know, if we don't understand the time that we live in and we don't understand God's word, then it's very easy for the culture to change your standard, to talk you out of what you believe. And if we really don't, if, if we don't look at this playbook that that was written of the life of Daniel for how, for how we should live in our culture, then the same effect will take place with us. There's that same opportunity. Daniel was very clear. They were asking him to eat things that were not a part of his diet. These were not kosher foods. <laughs> and so Daniel, but notice how Daniel handled himself. It was with grace. He didn't uh, boast or, or become proud that he wasn't touching the, the king's food and that was not on his list of, of things to eat, right? He didn't get upset. He didn't refuse. He asked. He said, with your permission, could you please serve us what we eat and there was a reservation on the, on the official. If you read the story and get down into it, I don't have time to go into all the details. But the, this official said, well, I'm afraid that I will lose my head over this. If I don't make you eat 
what the king is telling me that you should eat. And Daniel said, that's fine. Give us 10 days, all four of us guys. We will eat what we're, you know, what we're going to eat, our diet, for 10 days and see if we're as healthy and strong as before. So he wasn't disrespectful and he wasn't demanding. Write that down by your notes. As the church, we, we need not be disrespectful and demanding. I remember a time in my own life where uh, I was working down in Buckhead as we were starting the church. And so people in the office knew, and we had probably, let's see, 30 people in the office. Uh, people knew that, that I'm a pastor. And so we had already started the church, and it was just couple of handfuls of people at that time and and people in the office would they would come in my office and shut the door and want to be counseled and ask questions about the Bible and ask me to pray for them and pretty soon I said guys you've got to quit doing this we're going to have to we'll have and somebody suggested uh, well let's let's have a Bible study during lunch we can go back in the break room and those who want to come they can come bring the Bible. We'll just have a Bible study. So we did that for a while until it, that stirred up some things. With the culture, guys, you wouldn't think. I mean, here we're teaching people to love, to be respectful, to do the right thing, to show up early, to do your work, you know, as unto the Lord, and teaching the Bible in the office during lunch on, on our time. Not on the company time, because I was very insistent. You know, you guys have to quit walking through my door and asking me to pray and so forth and so on. So we started doing that during the lunch, and uh, it, it rubbed people the wrong way. But they came to me and said, we, we, we can't have this because there are some people who want to come to lunch and can't come to lunch, and they're trying to switch with other people that are supposed to be covering their shift and... And so it caused confusion. So you know what I did? I, did, I didn't buck up and become disrespectful and demand. I said, you know what? You're right. We're just going to put a hold on it. But listen, there was still things that happened that were God things in the office. It didn't stop God from moving just because I couldn't have a Bible study during lunch. Right? So we have, to be dis- we have to be respectful, not disrespectful. We can't be demanding. And we can't have this holier-than-thou attitude. Daniel didn't have that attitude of holier-than-thou. Because, listen, your holier-than-thou attitude doesn't imp- impress anybody, especially the people in the world. They are not impressed. The culture around you can put so much pressure on you that you begin to compromise. And here's what compromise sounds like. Well, you know, I, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You begin to slip. You begin to, without even thinking, adapt the, the culture of the world. And Babylon begins to creep in. You know, God's word is his standard. His word is his standard. And we can't change his word to fit our lifestyle. God doesn't change his word. 
And as, as a church, we have always, from the day that we started, we have always welcomed everyone. Everyone's welcome at Lifeway Church. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter where you're at right now in the moment. But we will not compromise what God's Word says. It is our standard, and it's very plain and very clear and very perfect. And so we don't apologize for the Word of God. Point number three, culture will create a confrontation to test me. (laughs) This culture creates a confrontation. You know, out of a confrontation, there's always a test. That's why those that do not like confrontation do not like to be tested. And, and it's okay. God didn't create us with a character or a personality to love confrontation. But we can learn from confrontation. Daniel learned from confrontation. And he was tested. Let's read verses 9 through 14 from Daniel 1. It says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. That's important. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the King who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king then would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. See, he asked nicely, please. Not, he didn't demand Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And guys, culture will always create a confrontation. Our faith is going to be tested. And we should respond in the right way. And it troubles me that the, the church as a whole has not been responding in the right way. There's, there's basically two extremes. Two extremes. The first extreme is being dogmatic. Just look up the word dogmatic. Dogmatic. When you're dogmatic, you say, I know that you're wrong. And that... Uh, if you're, I know you're, I know I'm right. I know that you're wrong, and because I know that you're wrong, you can just go to H-E double hockey, hockey sticks, right? Being dogmatic is is taking the stance that because I know I'm on God's side and you're not on God's side, then you must be lower than me. This is an extreme. It is unbalanced. And technically, you may be right, but from the heart, you're wrong. It's, it, it, it is a, it's a signal, it is significant that you have truth without grace. You know, God never called us to be right. He called us to be effective. And so the second extreme is God loves everybody. And I see this in the church. God loves everybody. And in the name of love, we have a generation of Christians that are now setting their Bible aside 
and actually thinking that they love people more than God does. And they do this in the name of love. Now, the problem with that is that the world has redefined the word love. The world, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this later on, a, on another Sunday here in the future, but the world has said, my definition of love is that you accept me for who I am and for what I do. That's not God's definition of love. It is true that God loves everybody. But this stance, this extreme stance, this unbalanced stance that some Christians have taken, we could categorize it as grace without truth. Now, the, the, first, the first being dogmatic is truth without grace. The second, God loves everybody. Oh, God even loves the devil. <laughs> That's grace without truth. And this is, this is totally wrong because we can't, we can't move God's truth around. We can't rearrange God's truth to fit our lives. Here's, here's the balance. John 1, 14. Here's the balance. This will help. The Word became flesh. Talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. This is the balance. This is the answer that we need to respond to the culture shift. To respond with grace and truth. Jesus was total perfection. He was total righteousness with skin on. He was totally perfect, completely holy, with prostitutes and lepers and tax, collect tax collectors and sinners at his feet. And he never compromised who he was or what he believed. And the sinners felt loved at the very same time. Think about that. Jesus learned how to navigate a culture that was totally against him without compromising God's standard. You say, well, what is God's standard? God's standard is his word. John 17, 17 says, Jesus, it was Jesus' prayer. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them or set them apart by your word because your word is truth. This is what sets us apart from the world. But if we don't know this and if we don't walk in this, then we're not set apart. We're just like everyone else. <clears throat> And as the church, yes, we have to love every single person, just like I said before. And they're welcome here at the church. But God's word is perfect and true, and his standard cannot be changed. Culture changes, but God's word never changes. You know, at the same time, God is such a God of grace, and he, he invites people by his grace. But his grace works with his word to transform us. The very first thing that God does when, when we bow our knee and submit to Him is He begins to change us from the inside out. And He's very patient and long-suffering with us, isn't He? Thank God. Tell your neighbor, thank, thank God that He's patient with you. <laughs> you. 
He favors. Guys, he favors the unfavorable. He died for us when we were still spitting in his face. He loves sinners. Here's a big question, and I know it's going to get tense in here right at this moment. Do you love sinners as much as Jesus loves sinners? Of course we're growing. Of course we're, but we have to continually set that goal that we love people as much as he loves people. You know, Daniel passed the test, and, and so did Jesus. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to look at how Jesus navigated cultural confrontation. Beginning in verse 1 of John 8 in the New International Version, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. This, I, I can't get away from this. They, this woman was caught. This was not hearsay knowledge. There weren't, there weren't rumors spread about this woman. She was caught in the act, and they brought her right immediately to Jesus. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Now what do you say? Here's a question. Here's the confrontation. Here's the tension in the room, guys. The world, those that work with you, around you, your neighbors, those people that don't know Jesus are always wanting to know what you say. What do you say about this? What do you say about the immigration issue? What do you say about the North Korean issue? What do you say about the abortion issue? What do you say? This culture wants an answer. And if we as Christians can't say anything, then we don't have any influence. We can't make an impact if we just sit silent and say, well, you know, that's not for me to say. Right? We don't want to be disrespectful. We don't want to be holier than thou. But we need to say something. The answer is the balance between grace and truth. Grace and truth. Here's what Jesus said. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. It was obvious that they were questioning him as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. There's some people that have a theory that Jesus was possibly writing the names of those women that those men had committed adultery with in the ground, starting with the oldest. <laughs> and that's why the oldest left first. Who knows? They're just theories. But... It's important to know that Jesus knew the hearts of these people that were wanting him to stone this woman. And the truth is, the truth is, under the law, she should have been stoned. 
and they were testing him. Society, this culture, wants to confront us and test us. How are we going to answer? Is it going to be all truth and no grace or all grace and no truth? How's, it, how's this going to turn out? So Jesus did what he did. And it was effective. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. And she said, no, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. So people all around us are asking us, what are we going to say? They're asking, they ask Jesus, what are you going to do? It's either or. And we don't have to do either or. We can do both and. Grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth. Listen, we're not changing God's word for our culture. But we're at the same time, we're going to freely give the grace that every single one of us needed as well. Did you need grace? Do you still need grace? Yes. How much more grace do we need? Much more. We sing about it. Amazing grace. We get excited about the grace of God because we know that without His grace, we're nothing. We're just a spot on the earth. Done. We're finished without His grace. Without His grace. And it's all about His grace and His truth. We're not the judge, but He is. Look, here's some... Words to fill in your blanks there. In moments of tension and confrontation, we must be full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth without grace is just mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. Truth without grace is just mean. But grace without truth is meaningless. We have to have both. You put grace and truth together, and it's medicine to get you healed. It's huge, grace and truth. The grace of God with the truth of God. It's what's necessary for us to reach this world. They have to see the grace of God and hear the grace of God. But they need to see and hear the truth of God. So we've got to dig deeper and know. We've got, we, we've got to learn how to stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for a message that challenges us. One that we can go back and study this week and apply it to our life and think about the people that we encounter with on a day-to-day basis. We, we encounter their questions and they just want to know. They, they, want, they want to know who they are so that they're not confused, so that they're not ultimately self-destructive. And they, 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 they want to know your standard. That's why there's so many questions about your word. People in the world want to know what, what you meant when you said what you said. Father, they're, they're asking questions and we as your church, we as the body should study to show ourselves approved so that we have answers and so that we're able to love them with your love and minister your grace to them 
and at the same time tell them to go and, and live a life that's pleasing to you. Thank you for helping us, Lord. Lord, over the next four weeks, I pray that we, we recognize and realize what, what position we have on this earth, that we accept that responsibility, that we're here on assignment to invite people into the greatest relationship that they could ever have with Jesus. Thank you for, for giving us such a, an honorable assignment, Lord. Thank you for trusting us with the gospel. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who, who gives us the power to speak words of life, to watch people's lives change. Thank you, Father, for such a powerful gospel, the word of grace and the word of truth that saves us.